Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. The literary master George Saunders is our guest this hour to show us, for starters, how to recognize a masterpiece in a mere short story. He's also going to spell out how a handful of Russians, led by Dostoevsky, then Tolstoy, then Chekhov, how they reset the standard of high art in the short story form. George Saunders himself won high honors for his best-selling novel of three years ago, titled Lincoln in the Bardo. It was Honest Abe in a sort of limbo to grieve again with his son Willie, who died in the White House. I call George Saunders a triple threat, a writer first, but famous too as a reader of the classics and as teacher in a celebrated writing course at Syracuse University from which this new book is drawn. It's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life. There's a double lure in this book, George Saunders, and in your teaching. First, to nail the Chekhov effect, what makes Chekhov Chekhov. The second part of the offer is to let the hands-on, real-life primary care Dr. Chekhov change your life. A Chekhov story is not quite therapy, but it's a literary intervention of some sort, What's the idea of healing in all this? There are many selves within us. And so there's the kind of normal guy who is pretty limited by his habits and his thinking patterns. And then there's that kind of deeper person inside of him that, you know, if he suddenly gets a call to say that someone beloved to him has died, that deeper person suddenly is manifesting. So I think literature, and particularly Chekhov, is a way of just almost like sacramentally reminding us that those multiple selves exist, lightly whispering in our ear that we might try to be the latter rather than the former. But that was very vividly my experience of one of the great stories in your book, In the Cart. Can I say it's about a lonely woman teaching school in a provincial town, and she's dreaming of release of some sort from her melancholy. And there's all sorts of craft in showing that. And then this revelation. Can you give us that in brief? What happens to her? The flash of insight. The brilliance of that story is we expect a certain kind of relief, which is, you know, on the superficial level, there's a, there's a man in the story, and we expect that somehow they'll, they'll have a friendship or something. The flash instead, it does just what we want, which is it sort of relieves her loneliness or it reboots her loneliness, but it's just a memory. She has a memory of her mother who's been dead for many years. Actually, she mistakes a woman on a passing train for her mother. Somehow seeing this woman, mistaking this woman for her mother, throws open this hidden memory box in her mind, and she remembers who she used to be, a lovely young woman who wasn't lonely but was beloved. In my reading, she only gets out of it for a second. And then there she is again in the same old cart. You know, the story kind of leaves us asking, well, when you have a moment like that where you remember that you used to be a more fortunate person, does that help you or hurt you? And again, being Chekhov, he sort of shrugs and goes, yeah, good question. You know, it's, it's a beautiful little story. And nothing happens. And yet, th things are possible. I hear him whispering to her, make a break. He's much too cool to say what Rilke said, you must change your life. But to me, as the reader, he says, 
look around. There are other possibilities. And I don't mean in love, but in life, in who you are. Speak of Russia, George, 1880s, 90s. I have this funny feeling it's sort of COVID time. It's isolation. It's a kind of fog of depression in the whole society, which turns out to be pre-revolutionary, and he's watching it all. Explain, where are we in this world? The one thing that's certainly true in Russia is they're in the middle of this incredible artistic renaissance, some of the best stories and novels ever written, Mm. that very, very strangely will shortly be followed by utter catastrophe, you know, the cataclysm of the revolution and and then Stalinism. So one of the things that interests me about this period is I I can certainly get on a soapbox and talk about how great these stories were and how how healing storytelling is and so on. But then you think, yeah, well, this culture that had that hit a real high watermark in this form, it didn't stop the cataclysm. And I guess you could argue maybe it was part of it. Maybe it sped them toward it. I don't, I don't really know. Come back to the craft and certain underlying Saunders principles we, we come to know about reading and writing. First, that it's a mind practice. It's a kind of experiment with one's attention. How does Chekhov do it? I think the way he does it, for example, in, in, in the cart, which we're talking about, is to put you in a certain place, you know, in that cart on that lonely road with that woman. He's right at your shoulder. His superpower is that he knows where you are. He knows what, what expectations he's created. He might even know what resistances he's created. You write, a story is a frank, intimate conversation between equals. You also write another Saundersism You don't need an idea to start a story. You just need a sentence. What do students make of that? Some of them feel relieved because, you know, I can remember being a student and, oh, my God, my ideas were my torture. I I, I didn't know which one to trust. I didn't know how to get an idea into the framework of a story. But most young writers, you know, they're drawn to that job because they have a real opinionated nature when it comes to sentences. For me, if uh, you give me a young person who has an irrationally strong feeling about sentences, that person will find a way to tell a story. For me, the process is, you know, you put any old sentence down, and then you react to it, usually with disgust. You start poking at it a little bit. If you start to try to improve the sound of a sentence, you're inevitably making it more specific and more efficient and more truthful. You have another one. I like the person I am in my stories better than I like the real me. What does a nervous young student make of that? I mean, everything I say in class is meant to lessen the anxiety of the process and to give them the power to proceed without so much neuroses and worry. So that statement, I I think what I'm saying to them is basically don't be afraid of your first draft. Don't feel accused by your first draft. George Saunders, you made a staggering comment in another context. It was an essay called The Brain Dead Megaphone. You said, the best stories make us more humble cause us to empathize with people we don't know because they help us imagine these people. And when we imagine them, if the storytelling is good enough, we imagine them as being essentially like us. Our venture in Iraq, you continued, was a literary failure, by which I mean a failure of imagination, a culture better at imagining richly, three-dimensionally, would have had a greater respect for war than we did. I feel this, I can't prove this, but it feels to me like our culture has started to kind of disrespect storytelling. If we want to have a wise culture, we should really um, reimagine how important reading is. I'd love to draw you out on gooseberries. It's a story I've read numerous times, and it always seems somewhat different. There are other Chekhov stories like it. Guys 
hunting or being together and telling each other stories. And this one's about two brothers, particularly the man talking about his brother who had a life in the bureaucracy, was dying to get back to the village and grow gooseberries. And he did eventually. Speak of any aspect of that story you like. The contradictions in it, the brotherhood in it, the joy in it. It gave you the title of your own book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. It's one of the most beloved stories and still for me, a bit of a mystery. It is for me too, even if I, after I've written about it. <laughs> I heard this story, uh, Tobias Wolf, who was my mentor, read the story to us when I was a first year graduate student. And it was so beautiful. It was such a powerful, humane reading. And, you know, it's a story that kind of convinced me that writing stories was what I wanted to do. The story builds to this speech that the one brother makes, and he's talking about happiness. And he basically says a very startling and original thing that I think is still true today, which is that in our pursuit of happiness, we sometimes morph over into a kind of self-satisfied decadence. And he says, it's actually our goal in life is not to be happy, it's to do good. But then there's a scene where that same guy takes this titular swim in a pond in the rain, and he's just overjoyed to be in that water. And he's in the middle of the water saying, oh my God, oh my God. So suddenly it's complicated because this guy who made a passionate case against happiness is the most happy person in the story for that 15 minutes. Mm. Chekhov seems to be, first he seems to be making a statement, we should be suspicious of happiness. Then he comes back and complicates it and says, well, maybe so, but God forbid we should try to live without it. And in the end, he adds a third complication. And then he sort of bows and walks out of the room. And I think what we're left to do is just, just suddenly we're newly aware that happiness is a thing, you know? Our, our relation to happiness is a thing. And you go, yeah, actually, that's true. I, I George, have a relation to happiness, <laughs> you know, that contains all the complications that Chekhov posited. And I think really... The effect is that you're just more aware. You're just more alert of that, to that for a couple minutes, and then you fade back into your normal self. But in some ways, to me, the, the beautiful tightrope walk that he does there is he resists simple judgment. At what point, George, did it click into your brain? That's the title of my book. It's the image I want to celebrate. A swim in a pond in the rain. That reading was so important to me back then. And actually, that scene, when Toby read it, you know, he was doing the, the voice, oh, oh, God, oh, God, as the man was swimming. It was funny, and it was sweet, and we all remembered some parallel moment of deep pleasure in our lives. And, you know, just one of those moments in a literary reading where the whole room was Chekhov. When I hit on it, I, I, I thought, well, I want to do something with that scene. And that, fr that phrase really pleased me, you know, swimming upon in the rain. It's perfect, Chekhov. And it reminds me, you say the good writer was also a good man. He was a kind person and a good doctor. Gorky said he made anybody in his presence want to be, to stand taller, but to be more himself, herself. About that gooseberry story, you have a wonderful anecdote that I'd never seen before about a visit with Tolstoy, his idol. They went swimming together, and it was after that that he wrote gooseberries. Tolstoy himself, a kind of living conflict about goodness, he preached it, and he was a son of a bitch to live with. Make that connection and what in the world could have prompted Chekhov to put it all into gooseberries? So Tolstoy is much older, an eminence and a philosopher. And Chekhov is a, you know, a story writer and with a, a growing reputation. But Chekhov said he didn't really want to meet Tolstoy because he didn't really agree with a lot of Tolstoy's ideas. So I think he was a little suspicious that he was going to run into this aristocratic 
windbag, basically. He went to visit Tolstoy finally, and Tolstoy was on his way to take a swim, to, to bathe. They stripped off, and <laughs> he jumped in the pond, and they talked, and they had a wonderful time. And, and Chekhov later said that he, you know, he loved Tolstoy dearly. And so then you think, okay, so now uh, three years later, I think, or some number of years later, Chekhov writes a story. In the story, there are basically three men. All of those characters are actually present in Chekhov and Tolstoy. So you can see that what Chekhov is doing was sort of mining the various projections within himself. It's very complex, but to juxtapose those two things is to get some idea of how he proceeded, which is fearlessly. Coming up, a radio experiment, reading aloud with George Saunders what Chekhov called his favorite story. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Anton Chekhov's account of a student walking home in freezing twilight from a hunting trip is so brief and vivid, I asked George Saunders if we could just read this three-and-a-half-page story called The Student together and ask him to teach it inside 20 minutes. So here we go. I've only read the story years ago and then once about an hour ago, so I'm kind of winging it, but let's have some fun with it. So I'm going to go ahead and probably mispronounce this poor kid's name, but... Ivan Velikopolsky, the son of a sacristan and a student of the clerical academy, returning home from shooting, kept walking on the path by the waterlogged meadows. His fingers were numb and his face was burning with the wind. It seemed to him that the cold that had suddenly come on had destroyed the order and harmony of things. The nature itself felt ill at ease, and that was why the evening darkness was falling more rapidly than usual. All around it was deserted and peculiarly gloomy. The only light was one gleaming in the widow's gardens near the river. The village over three miles away and everything in the distance all around was plunged in the cold evening mist. The student remembered that as he had left the house, his mother was sitting barefoot on the floor in the entryway, cleaning the samovar, while his father lay on the stove coughing. As it was Good Friday, nothing had been cooked and the student was terribly hungry. And now, shrinking from the cold, he thought that just such a wind had blown in the days of Rurik and in the time of Ivan the Terrible and Peter. And in their time, there had been just the same desperate poverty and hunger, the same thatched roofs with holes in them, ignorance, misery, the same desolation around, the same darkness, the same feeling of oppression. All these had existed, did exist, and would exist, and the lapse of a thousand years would make life no better. And he did not want to go home. Mm. Okay, so... We notice a couple things, I would say. I mean, and first of all, whatever we notice is valid. It's going to be brought forward. But we notice that this is a a student. So it's not a 90-year-old man. It's not a bitter wife. It's a young man. And I'm starting to notice that some of the things that seem to be being claimed by the third-person narrator are actually things that are from the point of view of this young student. So, for example, his idea that nature felt ill at ease that's why the darkness was falling. Everything was deserted and gloomy. And all these ideas about oppression and about uh, the past being alive today are, I think, Ivan's ideas. The first job of a story is to make a specific person to which things can happen. And beyond that, it's to make a specific person to which things can happen that are meaningful. So first, we have to have the three-dimensional person, and we have to have his psychology and a sense of what he values. And here, we're just starting to get a feeling of his I would say, youthful projections about the world. They're almost romantic. Mm-hmm. It's almost romantic to assume that, you know, nature is speaking directly to you in this way. But we don't know. And again, we're just sort of waiting. We also notice it's Good Friday. So this might come into play. Carrying on, he sees the widow's gardens. 
The gardens were called the widows because they were kept by two widows, mother and daughter. A campfire was burning brightly with a crackling sound, throwing out light far around on the plowed earth. The widow Vasilisa, a tall, fat old woman in a man's coat, was standing by and looking thoughtfully into the fire. Her daughter, Lucaria, a little pockmarked woman with a stupid-looking face, was sitting on the ground washing a cauldron and spoons. Apparently they had just had supper. There was a sound of men's voices. It was the laborers watering their horses at the river. Here you have winter back again, said the student, going up to the campfire. Good evening. Vasilisa started, but at once recognized him and smiled cordially. I did not know you. God bless you, she said. You'll be rich. They talked. Vasilisa, a woman of experience, who had been in service with the gentry, first as a wet nurse, afterwards as a children's nurse, expressed herself with refinement, and a soft, sedate smile never left her face. Her daughter, Lucaria, a village peasant woman who had been beaten by her husband, simply screwed up her eyes at the student and said nothing. And she had a strange expression like that of a deaf mute. Okay, let's inject a pause that I didn't ask for here. And and just just notice this. We've been so far in what I would call the exposition. We've met this kid. We see that he's out in the world. He's run into these two people. Look at how constrained the story has now become. We know that whatever it's going to do, it's going to have to involve these two women. Why? Because we don't have Mm -hmm. time to reboot. You know, we don't have time to suddenly swerve over somewhere else because we've already used up these lines to get him in their presence. We might also notice a little bit of impatience because it's supposed to be a story, and so far, uh, nothing's changed. He's the same kid. He hasn't done anything. They haven't done anything. The elements have been put in place. So one of the things a storyteller has to work with is that slight impatience on the part of the listener Mm -hmm. saying, okay, okay, I've got it. Student, two widows, let's get going. Let's see, reading ahead, what constitutes what we call in Storyland rising action. In other words, what is Mm. Chekhov going to do now to make us feel that the story has begun? So maybe I'll take this next bit here. Please. At just such a fire, the apostle Peter warmed himself, said the student, stretching out his hands to the fire. So it must have been cold then too. Ah, what a terrible night it must have been, Granny. An utterly dismal, long night. He looked round at the darkness, shook his head abruptly and asked, No doubt you have heard the reading of the Twelve Apostles. Yes, I have, answered Vasilisa. If you remember, at the Last Supper, Peter said to Jesus, I am ready to go with thee into darkness and unto death. And our Lord answered him thus, I say unto thee, Peter, before the cock croweth, thou wilt have denied me thrice. After the supper, Jesus went through the agony of death in the garden and prayed, and poor Peter was weary in spirit and faint. His eyelids were heavy, and he could not struggle against sleep. He fell asleep. Then you heard how Judas, the same night, kissed Jesus and betrayed him to his tormentors. They took him bound to the high priest and beat him, while Peter, exhausted, worn out with misery and alarm, hardly awake, you know, feeling that something awful was just going to happen on earth, followed behind. He loved Jesus passionately, intensely, and now he saw from far off how he was beaten. So we pause here. Okay, so the action has actually begun, and it's begun because Ivan, the young student, has made a decision to tell this story. I think what we find ourselves doing there is, well, wondering which story he's going to tell and why he's going to tell it. And in my case, I'm noticing that it's a little nervy of him, you know, kind of burst into this place Mm. and start telling this long story to these older women, women who are older than him. I'm wondering what they think about it. 
in my reading, that's what's hanging over the story is he's going on and on paraphrasing the Bible. Uh, how are these women going to receive it? This is an example of what I call a, an expectation bubble. Chekhov has made this question in our mind, how is this story being received? And depending on the answer, it becomes a different story. You know, If one of the women smacks him mm. with a broom and says, you're an idiot, leave me alone, I'm busy, that's one story. If the woman does something else, it's a different story. Also, I'm picking up traces here because of my own discomfort with his storytelling, the, the fact that he would do this. I'm noticing he falters a little bit when he says, worn out with misery alarm, hardly awake. You know, I sense that maybe he's feeling the same doubt himself. So that's what I would say is hanging over the story. Now, you might have a different sense, and of course you will. Well, I'm also thinking Chekhov is telling you a story, a story within a story, and it's a sort of yes. tribute to a story or a storytelling or something. Exactly right. Another bowling pin that the story has put in the air is which story is Chekhov telling us? Exactly. We might just say generally it's a story of denial. It's a story of the son of man appearing before a human being and the human being, in spite of himself, betraying him. All those bowling pins are in the air, and we can see that we have maybe about a page and a half left for those bowling pins to come down. Please go ahead. Lucaria, the daughter, left the spoons and fixed an immovable stare upon the student. And he continues the story. They came to the high priests, he went on. They began to question Jesus. And meantime, the laborers made a fire in the yard as it was cold and warmed themselves. Peter, too stood with them near the fire and warmed himself as I am doing. A woman, seeing him, said, He was with Jesus, too. That is as much as to say that he, too, should be taken to be questioned. And all the laborers that were standing near the fire must have looked sourly and suspiciously at him because he was confused. And he said, I don't know him. A little while after, someone recognized him as one of Jesus' disciples and said, Thou, too, art one of them. But again, he denied it. And for the third time, someone turned to him. Why, did I not see thee with him in the garden today? For the third time, he denied it. And immediately after that time, the cock crowed. And Peter, looking from afar off at Jesus, remembered the words he had said to him in the evening. He remembered, came to himself, went out of the yard, and wept bitterly, bitterly. In the gospel that is written, he went out and wept bitterly. I imagine it, the still, still, dark, dark garden, and in the stillness, faintly audible, smothered sobbing. The student sighed and sank into thought. Right. So now we're still kind of waiting to see how these ladies take it, but we did get the detail that Lucaria left the spoons, meaning she stops her work and she fixes an immovable stare upon the student. So they didn't dismiss him. I also noticed that he asked them earlier, have you heard the story? They say, yeah, and he's going to tell it to him anyway. So there's a slight feeling of a didactic intent or a kind of a, you know, um, I'm going to tell you the story, although you just told me that you heard it. I'm going to perform the story for you. Mm-hmm. You know, not quite really caring what they're in the middle of and so on. So there's still a bit of a um, a question mark hanging over, do they want to hear this story? The other thing we notice that's really interesting is that as he tells the story about Jesus, he says, and all the laborers that were standing near the fire must have looked sourly and suspiciously at him. Well, that word laborers has appeared in the story once before. There are some Mm. laborers nearby this uh, garden, and they're away, and he's telling the story to these two women. So I would say that at some level, our sensors go up 
the location of the laborers is a kind of a, a vector in this story. So here we have, I think, one page left, and we're still waiting to see how this becomes a short story. And here comes, I think, the moment we've been waiting for, which is how do these women take the story? And again, they could laugh at them, they could mock them, they could, you know. So still smiling, Vesalisa suddenly gave a gulp. Big tears flowed freely down her cheeks, and she screened her face from the fire with her sleeve as though ashamed of her tears. And Lucaria, staring immovably at the student, flushed crimson, and her expression became strained and heavy like that of someone enduring intense pain. So this bowling pin came down this particular way. They're moved by the story. She's weeping, and the other one is blushing. So that's an interesting choice, and in some ways it's a higher-order choice than having these two working-class women put this smarty-pants student Mm. in his place. And in a sense, that's maybe the main action of the story, but we've got about three-quarters of the page left, so why don't you (laughs) take us out? (laughs) Back at the riverside, the laborers came back from the river, and one of them riding a horse was quite near, and the light from the fire quivered upon him. The student said good night to the widows and went on. And again, the darkness was about him, and his fingers began to be numb. A cruel wind was blowing. Winter really had come back. And it did not feel as though Easter would be the day after tomorrow. Christopher, let's pause there just for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in the book, I do this exercise, and I do it with my students, which is to say, let's ask ourselves, what if the story ended here? So the story Mm -hmm. ends, a cruel wind was blowing, winter really had come back, and it did not feel as though Easter would be the day after tomorrow. The end. So for young writers, this is a good exercise because they say, well, is that sufficient? You know, if it is, we should stop because otherwise it's wasteful. Does this story, in a manner of speaking, catch all the bowling pins if we stop it there? At this point, how fully has the story reacted to itself? Is there, you know, what else do we need before, you know, how can we justify not stopping it right there? And in my mind, one of the things that's been raised by the story is I'm reading Ivan as a kind of arrogant, didactic, self-impressed young guy in a very sweet way, just the way that we all are when we're 22 and we're, you know, we're just discovering things for the first time. He barges into this scene. One of the women is, uh, her husband beats her, they're working hard, and he pontificates for a while. We first thought that maybe he'd pay the price for that, but in fact, they were moved mm. by it. So one of the things in, it's in the story is this idea, of, was that a good thing that he just did? Did he do them a favor or did he hurt them? And we're kind of waiting for some kind of I'm waiting for some kind of clarity on how I'm supposed to understand this kid. Am I supposed to like him, dislike him, you know, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. For me, that's one thing that's hanging over the story that would make me not quite satisfied. If it ended there, I think I'm supposed to take simply that he told a beautiful story and these women surprising us liked it. But I have a feeling that Chekhov has something more in mind. Do you want to continue or shall I? Sure. Also, we should point out the laborers came back and he runs off. So you get a little sense that he doesn't mind pontificating in front of these older women. But when the men come back, he decides it's time to leave. In other words, he doesn't hang around and retell the story to the men who come back from the river, Mm. which makes me think he's young. Okay. uh, Now the student was thinking about Vesalisa. Since she had shed tears, all that had happened to Peter the night before the crucifixion must have some relation to her. He looked around. The solitary light was still gleaming in the darkness, and no figures could be seen near it now. The student thought again that if Vesalisa had shed tears and her daughter had been troubled, it was evident that what he had just been telling them about, which had happened 19 centuries ago, had a relation to the present. 
to both women, to the desolate village, to himself, to all people. The old woman had wept, not because he could tell the story touchingly, but because Peter was near to her, because her whole being was interested in what was passing in Peter's soul. And joy suddenly stirred in his soul, and he even stopped for a minute to take breath. So why don't you take it to the end, Christopher? The past, he thought, is linked with the present by an unbroken chain of events flowing one out of another. And it seemed to him that he had just seen both ends of that chain, that when he touched one end, the other quivered. When he crossed the river by the ferry boat and afterward, mounting the hill, looked at his village and toward the west where the cold crimson sunset lay a narrow streak of light, he thought that truth and beauty, which had guided human life there in the garden and in the yard of the high priest, had continued without interruption to this day and had evidently always been the chief thing in human life and in all earthly life, indeed. And the feeling of youth, health, vigor, he was only 22, and the inexpressible sweet expectation of happiness, of unknown mysterious happiness, took possession of him little by little, and life seemed to him enchanting, marvelous, and full of lofty meaning. Mm, Beautiful, yeah. So the way this lands on me is that I have one thing in mind, which is that he's a naive, sort of obnoxious, didactic little teen-splainer or mansplainer, and he tells a beautiful story, and it moves people, and he draws a beautiful conclusion from it, and he's still quite young, you know? Hmm. I think we've all had insights like this. All of it's true at once. So I can see him as a little bit overbearing, a little bit, you know, kind of naive and full of himself. Also saying something very true and wise. And we also might notice that the heavy, somber mood that was on the story in the beginning is now gone. And it's not gone because anything's changed except he's had this moment of interaction. And we might also notice that there's a strange, beautiful tracking in the same way that, you know, Jesus came to the earth, presented himself to Peter, and Peter betrayed him. Here, this young boy brings this kind of Um, lovely insight, this kind of youthful optimism to these two old women who don't betray him. They fully accept his story and they accept him. Mm. It's almost like a mirror image. So many things going on. I hear it differently than I had before. He is a student preacher. There's something presumptuous and a little pushy about him, but he's just found an audience and given his story and surprise, surprise, he's moved them and he's moved himself. And I think, again, Chekhov is talking about the art of the story. Yes. And in Chekhov, you know, there's the additional complication that, you know, if you think of it, you're the two old widows. You're out there working in this cold day, and the guys are coming home to eat. This kid comes along, tells you the story. You're moved. But one reading is, well, to what end? You know, he just plunged him into misery for a couple minutes and then left. What I love about Chekhov is the multiplicity. You know, did he do them any good with that story? Probably he he did, but they didn't ask for it, you know. And as you say, he's sort of practicing his, his preaching on them, you know. So it's both things are true in the way that in the real world, both things are true, you know. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well said. Coming up, a meeting of minds and spirits. Anton Chekhov with the very different sort of writer that he adored, Leo Tolstoy. This is Open Source.
I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. George Saunders reminds us that Anton Chekhov had doubts that the world could survive if Leo Tolstoy ever died. In fact, the much younger Chekhov died first, 44 years old, in 1904. His hero Tolstoy was many things that Chekhov was not. An epic historian and novelist, a moralist also, and in his old age, a sort of preacher in fiction. Tolstoy's story, called Master and Man, is classic late Tolstoy and a George Saunders favorite. It brings gripping details and facts of a natural storm thriller together with a transcendent moral awakening. I'm asking George Saunders to break the story down with us, and along the way we're listening to clips from the audiobook read by the actor Keith David. This story is always the hit of the semester because, you know, the experience that students report is that uh, you start to read it as a story and pretty soon it just starts happening. And you're kind of reading to find out who dies, basically. It brings up huge issues about oppression and power and can a human being improve and so on. You know, we think of Tolstoy as this great prophetic philosophical god, but actually his work is almost entirely fact. His stylistic trait is that he's able to get an extraordinary number of simple facts into one sentence. Mm. He almost effortlessly just fills up the world with facts. So that's one thing to look for. And I think really, you know, I I would just say, um, let yourself be swept along by it. There are three main players in this story. The landowner, Vasily, his man, Nikita, a reformed drinker, a peasant, and their horse is called Mukhorti. They're in a terribly dangerous storm, and it's nothing but bitter cold. You speak of detail, George. It jumps right out that as they head out into the wilderness, there are actually four passages about laundry on a line. It's the same laundry, and it's the clue in the story that they are going in circles. Having driven through the snow, they came out into a street. At the end house of the village, some frozen clothes hanging on a line, shirts, one red and one white, trousers, leg bands, and a petticoat fluttered wildly in the wind. The white shirt in particular struggled desperately, waving its sleeves about. There now, either a lazy woman or a dead one has not taken her clothes down before the holiday, remarked Nikita, looking at the fluttering shirts. You know, the first time we read this, it's just a kind of a throwaway detail. They're coming uh, into a town called Grishino, and what we're feeling is they're clearly in a little bit of trouble. It's cold out. The landowner has gotten them lost, and we're kind of rooting for them to stop and to stay in the town. They don't. Uh, He's a little too greedy. He wants to get going. And as they head out of town, they pass that same laundry a, a second time. So now, even in that short time they've been in the town, the storm is is hard enough that it's broken that white shirt loose, and it's now just attached by one sleeve. And in my mind, the shirt almost seems to be signaling, like, go back into town, you idiots. But the main point I make to my students is that having made a physical reality, the, the clothes on the line, Tolstoy just remembers that it's there, and then he remembers to alter it. And this is what we might call a mini-escalation. It's some very quiet part in our reading mind. We really like that. We like the fact that Tolstoy is so attentive to this life that he's made. Mm. So then they go back out into the woods and they get lost again. You think they're moving in a certain direction and it turns out that they're circling and we get the next description of that laundry. 
Before another half hour had passed, they saw something dark ahead of them, a wood or a village, and stakes again appeared to the right. They had evidently come out onto the road. Why, that's Grishkina again, Nikita suddenly exclaimed. And indeed, there on their left was that same barn with the snow flying from it, and farther on, the same line with the frozen washing, shirts and trousers, which still fluttered desperately in the wind. So here we get a gut-sinking feeling that everything that's happened in the last three pages has gotten them absolutely nowhere. The addition here is, I think, the word desperately. Now they're floating desperately in the wind. We know, nature knows, that this is going to be a crisis, but unfortunately, um, Vasily doesn't know it. So they continue on in the town. But again, we note this is the third incarnation of the laundry, and we've started to understand the laundry as kind of a metaphorical indicator in a weird way, the laundry is telling us what to think about the main character's situation. So they go into town. Uh, we are hoping so much that they'll stay, but for complicated reasons, Vasily decides not to. They go back out into the storm and actually to, to some death that's, that's coming. Uh, but on the way out, they pass that laundry one more time. They drove again through the outskirts of the village and along the same road past the yard where the frozen linen had hung, which, however, was no longer to be seen, past the same barn, which was now snowed up almost to the roof, and from which the snow was still endlessly pouring. So again, it's a very small detail. You, you wouldn't even notice it really in the first read, but we just note how lovingly Tolstoy had tended to that detail. The story is just full of these kind of micro-escalations where... We take our sense of forward progress and our sense of meaning from these tiny variations in elements that Tolstoy very offhandedly introduced. It's just a masterpiece. And when we think about how he did it, I don't know, except it tells us that one of the qualities of a great writer is a kind of mindfulness. Mm. We're sledding into doom, as we've known from the beginning. How it's going to play out between the horse, the servant, and the master is the only question. But the death scene is just so full of pathos, feeling and a moral lesson. Let's just hear the end. Here, he no longer heard the horse's movements or the whistling of the wind, but only Nikita's breathing. At first, and for a long time, Nikita lay motionless. Then he sighed deeply and moved. There... And you say you are dying. Lie still and get warm. That's our way, began Vasily Andreevich. But to his great surprise, he could say no more. For tears came to his eyes, and his lower jaw began to quiver rapidly. He stopped speaking and only gulped down the risings in his throat. Seems I was badly frightened and have gone quite weak, he thought. But this weakness was not only not unpleasant, but gave him a peculiar joy, such as he had never felt before. That's our way, he said to himself, experiencing a strange and solemn tenderness. He lay like that for a long time, wiping his eyes on the fur of his coat and tucking under his knee the right skirt, which the wind kept turning up. But he longed so passionately to tell somebody 
of his joyful condition that he said, Nikita, it's comfortable. Warm, came a voice from beneath. There, you see, friend, I was going to perish, and you would have been frozen, and I should have... But again his jaws began to quiver, and his eyes to fill with tears, and he could say no more. Mm, whole story. <laughs> so wonderful. One of the questions that hangs over the story, because Vasily is a real stinker. You know, he's a really greedy guy. He talks down to Nikita and dismisses him and ignores his advice. So, you know, we said earlier that a story has got a question that it's asking, and we understand that question pretty early. In this one, the sort of surface question is, will they survive? But the deeper one is, is it possible for somebody like this guy to change? Tolstoy does a beautiful job of, of representing the mind of a narcissist in his internal musings. So a little bit like A Christmas Carol, the story says, here's a guy who's a bad guy. We all know somebody like this. Maybe we are like this from time to time. Is it possible for somebody to change? And if so, please tell me how. Tolstoy kind of corners himself because he's made such a stinker that we aren't going to believe it if the angels just come down and inspire him. And it says something about the way that change might be possible for any of us, which is you're not going to totally reboot your personality. You know, you're not going to totally morph into Gandhi or something, but uh, you're going to take some inclination that you have that has been misdirected and you're going to direct it towards something good. And that's kind of what happens to Vasily. But your reading is very special, George, and I've never seen it that way. It is how the powerful man who's obnoxious, who's pig-headed and misses all the clues about the danger they're in, suddenly turns out to rejoice in protecting his servant at the very end and at the cost of his own life. It is very Christmas Carol, the moral that you draw, which is that he wasn't exactly converted. He was born back to his own self. As Scrooge is by re-experiencing his own Christmas's past. Right. You know, Scrooge just forgot that he was once uh, a young man in love and that he was once somebody who enjoyed dancing. He just forgot. And, that, and what the ghosts really do is they just turn on that part of his brain again. Vasily is somebody who has a lot of positive qualities. He's energetic. He works hard. Uh, he's got a kind of a, you know, very strong accomplishment ethos and all these things. The problem is all that energy has just been feeding his narrative that he's some kind of hmm. wonderful uh, God, that he's smarter than everyone, better than everyone. And in the process, he's been disregarding the people in his life. What happens is all those positive qualities of accomplishment and energy and even ego, they just get repurposed a little bit. And it's such a beautiful thing. Even as he's doing this wonderful, heroic, selfless act, he's praising himself for it. He's so, you know, it's like, I'm so good at saving people. So that kind of self-worshipper doesn't go away even at the moment of his death. Tolstoy sometimes does this miraculous thing of making Vasily do something truly lovely and heroic without descending into sentimentality mm. or false emotion. Place it, if you will, in the vast range of Tolstoy's gifts and his work and his life. Those late stories, including the Kreutzer Sonata, which is very anti-passion, anti-sex, uh, but others like the death of Ivan Illich, these are some of his greatest pieces. Yes. You know, it's interesting to compare him with Chekhov. Uh, they're just, you know, both great talents, but Tolstoy was quite moralistic. 
And so what he would do is mm. he would take some belief that he held as a uh, sort of a moral prophet and he'd spit it into a fictive medium and he'd start kicking a little bit and working with it. And the beautiful thing about it is he often ends up contradicting himself. He'll have uh, an idea that he believes in very strongly, but under the heat of his fictive talent, he finds it hard to be false. But I don't think there are too many times in his fiction, to my taste, where he sermonizes. In that case of definite, I know he's telling a very profound truth, I think, which is that if we don't get in relation to the people around us, and if we don't accept them as being as real as ourselves, and if we don't understand that the only thing that's really going to last mm. is that kind of connection, then we're going to get to the end and we're going to feel as he did that I've done something wrong, you know, something's wrong. And so the redemption in that story, the peasant, um, you know, he, he just does a basic human kindness, which is he lets, right. lets Ivan put his legs up on his shoulders and that just relieves the pain marginally. Uh, and at the very end, what Ivan realizes is that he needs to be kind to his son and wife and die, get out of there, relieve them of this. Mm. And that's the redemption. You know, I totally wouldn't claim that everybody gets that, but his redemption is, is totally based in the facts of his life, which is that for all these 50 some years, he never connected with anybody. And in the last four or five minutes or whatever, he, he does. Yeah. And, it, you know, Tolstoy does this amazing structural thing where he starts the story out at Ivan's funeral. And it's a very funny scene, the way that funerals can be kind of funny because nobody can really sustain the proper reverence for very long. Everybody wants to go out to eat. And um, <laughs> so it's very funny. And it's also chilling because there's nobody really there who is truly grieving for him. And we wonder, what's, what's with this? And then we get the whole story of this guy's life. You know, his his revelation is very private. Nobody really knows that he's been transformed. So at the funeral, they kind of treat him like the guy he was, which was somebody who could never connect. Mm. Very, it's very, very terrifying. A few years ago, Philip Roth wrote one of his great short last pieces, Every Man. It's about a man himself who has grown old and is dying, but he's thinking of his boyhood on the Jersey coast and swimming like a little torpedo. But he's got a heart problem. He goes into surgery. He's dreaming, in effect, of his boyhood, swimming towards shore. And at the very end of that story, which read a lot to me like Ivan Illich, he sees an area of light expanding in front of him, going to the end. And I said, is this a redemptive ending, Philip? He said, I, I, I don't do redemption except at the grocery store. It's, it's just about how he died. <laughs> the other line I challenged Philip with was, the prayer of St. Francis ends with, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Uh, and Philip hmm. would have nothing of it. I think Tolstoy might have. The great oh, blessing yeah. was that peasant and the light, the expanding light as he died. And I think, you know, as in The Master and Man, you could also say that it's the recession of self. Death is basically the recession of self. And so it could be, I don't know that Tolstoy ever said this, but to my way of thinking, no matter what your religious belief, no matter what your life has been like, yourself is going to recede at the end. And I think for most of us, that might be somewhat of a relief, maybe, maybe not. George Jones, I have to ask you the big picture question about this wonderful book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, subtitled, In Which Four Russians Give a Masterclass on Writing, Reading, and life, why the Russian grip on all of us? 
that we haven't even mentioned Dostoevsky. But what is it, that period, that genius, as you say in music too, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, dance, painting, everywhere. I was talking to Mary Carr last night, and she said something about this period reminding her a little bit of the 60s and 70s in rock music, that, you know, just a time where the form found out what it was somehow. And I know that in that Russian culture, you know, it was not unusual to go to a party and someone would say, oh, I think I'll read from my novel. And they'd sit there for two, three hours and listen to the novel. Or maybe like uh, America was with respect to jazz in its prime. For me, the Russians, they, they ring a certain bell in me that thinks that literature is a good way to understand life better and to somehow live it more fully. And for me, it's a sleeker, more useful form of philosophy than philosophy itself to see you know, human conundrums play out in real time. And I think that that understanding of mine is kind of in line with what uh, Russian culture at this time understood to be the function of fiction. Uh, also, to be honest, in this book, these stories just teach beautifully. If you have a room full of young writers who are hungry, you know, each of them is uh, struggling with their own issues. You drop some Tolstoy on them or some Chekhov, and you can just see the wheels turning. You can even see sometimes the student will just get real quiet all of a sudden. You're like, aha. This is speaking to her, and she's going to go home with some possible solutions. So, so that's, that's why I've taught him all these years, and that's why I decided to write the book. So glad you did, George Saunders. Can't get enough of it. Thank you enormously for your reading, for your writing, for this conversation. Well, thank you so much for your wonderful show, and it's always such a pleasure to be with you and to be in contact with that magnificent mind of yours. <laughs> oh, my Lord. George, thank you. Thank you. George Saunders' new book is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. We've used here some clips from the audiobook, which has readings by Keith David, Glenn Close, Nick Offerman, and more. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks, with engineering help from Paul Kahlo and Michael Garth. Mary McGrath is the hero in all of our storytelling. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time for Open Source.